that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Oh, that we could only say that today, if all, all of us could say that. I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why did he say that? For I, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. That means the love of God and the hatred of God. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, your Word gives us reason to praise you because your Word is good. It's perfect. It enlightens the mind and the heart. It gives us what we need, what's not found in a world of liars. We are like our father, the devil. As we're born into this world, we just gravitate towards lying, believing lies, being deceived by lies, passing on lies. It's, it's anything but the truth. We lie about who we are. We live in a fantasy world where we produce things in our mind that are not true and we accept them as true. It's a, we live in a delusional world. But your word is set apart from this world's delusions. It's a word which speaks truth. We, ne- we don't want to hear it. We want a God fashioned in our own likeness. We don't want a God who is perfectly good and honest and holy. God who only speaks the truth, even if it means he exposes himself for what he is, a consuming fire. Lord, I acknowledge that because your word is truth and because you are good, This whole concept of a God who throws people into hell for all eternity, it's what your word says. People may not want to accept that reality, but it's reality. I ask your Heavenly Father that you would help me to speak in this message, a word that is consistent with what the Bible says. Do it in love, but to see Jesus as the one who went to the cross, and he suffered that hell for us. Doesn't mean that hell ceases to exist. Lord, help us hide your servant behind the cross that Jesus might be exposed and the God of the Bible might be seen for exactly what you are. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So for about 15 years or so now, I have prayed, Lord, please allow me to end well. And by that, I have have meant that, you know, the people I have seen for so many years falling by the wayside because of immorality or pride by which when you try to talk to them, they just don't have an ear to hear. doesn't matter if you quote scripture. doesn't matter if you're quoting the scripture correctly. It's just, I'm just, this is who I am. As I had one pastor tell me, you know, I've been a Southern Baptist all my life. You know, I'm not going to change now. So I'm bringing you the Bible, and you're bringing me that you're a Southern Baptist. So what do you do with that? You know, church members that I deal with, some are just so tired of the church the way it is. Some have their eyes open, and they're alert, and they care. Others, they're just indifferent. They, They fall into this mode of praising when they're in church as if music were worship, and it it can be worshipful for the person depending on what's going on on the inside. You know, taking the garbage out can be worshipful. It depends on the heart and the state of mind of the pers- person who's worshiping. Are they there to be obedient to Christ in whatever they do? It's exactly what Paul said. In whatever you do, in all you do, give God the glory. Glorify God in all that you do. It's about glorifying God. It's not about praising with the right spirit or with the right tempo. You know, Sunday morning is just about getting together and then where are people the rest of the week? I don't know. I don't know who this message is going out to. I don't know what the who I'm speaking to for the most part. But what I do care about the most is that when we see God 
you know, we would see him as we, we, that we would see him now as we will see him then so that we would be prepared to see him then. Uh, another part of Sunday is, is there really nourishment being given in the church of Jesus Christ? Are people growing? I, I think not. Some would ask me, how do you know there's no nourishment? You go to all the churches? No. Jesus said, however, in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, if you compare the 21st century, the 20th century, with the with the 19th century, the percentage of people that went to the mission field, this is not even close. It's not funny. It's, it's ludicrous, really. We have more money, more resources, better means of travel, so much more than they did in the 19th century. And yes, missionaries covered the globe in the 19th century. Why? Why was that? I can't give all the answers. I only know what I just said is true, historically, factually. When was the last time you went to church and the majority of members were capable of and willing to obey all of Jesus' command to go, to obey his command when we stay? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Is that the mentality and the priority of all Christian people across the United States? In most churches, proving that God is holy by our obedience, is that the goal in life? Is that the priority for church members today? I'll let you think about it. I don't know what your experience is or what, what you're experiencing now. If you're like most that I hear from, you know, it's like, I, you need to meet my pastor. I don't want to meet your pastor. I want to talk to you. I want to know where you're at. I want to know how well you know the scriptures. I want to know how much you pray. I want to know how obedient you are. And I'm not your judge, so this is kind of like, in a broad sense, this is what should matter. The individuals in the church, not the pastor, he does not determine the life of the church. All the individuals within the church determine the life in the church. So if the pastor is a glowing PhD, and all the members can't give you a decent answer, to five out of ten questions about what God means by what he said in the Bible, there's a problem. You see the problem? There's a problem. It, the judge, church is judged by its members, not by its leadership. The leadership has its own judgment, but the church as a whole is judged by the whole, not a part. It's kind of reasonable, I think. Paul wrote to Timothy, we want to, I want to look at Ephesus today a little bit. The church at Ephesus. But in 1 Timothy 1, 3-7, he wrote these words, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia or Europe, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, not to be engaged with strange teachings, for to, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The administration of God is seen in God's word. How we administer the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the truth about the church? It's all in, it's all in the gospel. It's all in the, in the Bible. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So see, the goal of instruction is not in the instruction. It's not sounding good. It's not being a good orator. It's, it's not telling nice stories. It's not being pleasant to listen to, that we don't upset anybody's, their, their emotions or their feelings or their sensitivities. That's not what we're looking for. That's not the goal of instruction. The goal of instruction is love, and love is best expressed when a man who's teaching tells the truth and the whole truth. Not just that God is love, that God is only love. No, that's not it. The whole truth explains God as a God of love and a God who is a consuming fire. 
a God who will not allow sin to take place, a God who will not allow sin in his universe. There's sin in the universe only for a short period of time. It's like a vapor. It no sooner rises from the pot, it's gone. It just comes up and it goes. That's what we got. We don't have eternity now. All we have right now is something in the vicinity of 6,000 years of mankind on the planet Earth, which is just a snap of the fingers and it's over. And we're approaching probably the last thousand years, soon enough to be sure. So the goal of instruction is love that tells the truth from a pure heart. Not, not a heart that's confused, it's worldly, it's, it wants to do good, it does evil, it's fleshly, it's spiritual. Just so confused you can't even tell from one minute to the next what the person is. This isn't like the disciples in the garden where they're sleeping through Jesus, sweating blood, and going to the cross, and then denying him, standing in the showers, shadows, cursing to avoid being connected with him, and then going out and going out and weeping violently. This is not that. Why am I not saying that, that this is that? It's because it talks about love from a pure heart and a good conscience. A person who lives one minute in the flesh and the next in the spirit and just bounces back and really basically is, is living in a worldly existence, giving some time to God, but most of the time living with an impure heart, that's, that cannot possibly be in good conscience. And not only that, a sincere faith. A sincere faith means that when you talk about Jesus, you really mean it. When you talk about uh, faith, which leads to obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit, this, this, uh, this is sincere, sincere means that's really happening. It's not hypocr hypocritical. It's not uh, something which is pretense. It's not some plastic face that looks religious, but really down deep inside. I don't really care for spending time with Jesus. I don't care obedience with Jesus. Not really. I have a sense of morality but living from moment to moment is just really basically living for myself out of the world. That's not what's being said here. In verse 6, he goes on and says, For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. So they're talking, but it's not accomplishing anything good. Wanting to be teachers of the law, why? Well, you know, it has status. Even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the, or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Everybody's confident. Everybody knows what they're talking about, whether it's the Arminian or the Calvinist. You know, they both have their arguments in line, and then there's the people who are in the media, in the middle, and they don't take either side, and that makes them feel good. I don't know, maybe humble, because, you know, they're not arguing about one thing or another. They're just outside of it, like anyone can do that. So the next one is in Acts 19, as we proceed to talk about the church at Ephesus, God, and that's Acts 19, beginning at verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. So that's two things. There's sickness there, and there's evil spirits. And we're going to look at this cl closely. Let's not make any assumptions right now, but what is and isn't so far as revival in our nation and around the world for the last hundred years. Let's, let's just take this slow. Verse 13, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirits answered and said to them, this is real evil spirits talking now, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit, so it's a man speaking, the spirit speaking through the man, much like the devil spoke through the, the serpent, speaking through this man, this evil spirit, leaped on them and subdued, subdued all of them and overpowered them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This is, this is something that is God's word. This happened. This is real. In real time, this took place. 
And then going from there in verse 17, this became known to all both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. This is the essence of what takes place in the New Testament. You look at New Testament and you go, why doesn't that like, why don't we really see that here? Sure, there's, there's fraudulently and uh, things that take place and, and people making believe. And I've, been, I've seen and I've gone behind the scenes and just seen how fake some of this is. And some old people will say, well, yeah, of course there's the fake and then there's also the real. But let me ask you this. Is the church really on fire like this today? This is where this, all this is coming from, from what I'm sharing today. Are people falling down in the pews like they did during the Great Awakening and crying out for mercy to God during the Welsh revivals, 1904, 29, 39 to 42? You know, times when God just came upon people, and I'm, I'm saying this in the midst of thinking about Asbury and what's going out in Kentucky and is this going to turn out to be real and maybe it is. I don't know. I haven't been there. But, you know, is there real? Well, Pentecost explains to us from the scriptures, this is what revival looked like. Revival is not common in all ages and in all years and at all times around the world. There are times when it's anything but revival, where people cool off, they get lukewarm, and they turn, how they turn is just cold. That's not revival. During the early years, right here in Ephesus, this is revival. This is God coming down, not like he is all the time where he's everywhere present and you'd never know he's there, except in, in his hand in a tree, that you know that everything that goes on on earth, if that's where your head is at, is all of God. But it's, it's seen in evidence that way of something being made, but then in the church, spiritually, where there's new life, there's rebirth, there's regeneration. There's being raised from the dead. You know, when, does, when that doesn't take place in normal times, God is not seen like the Shekinah glory. You can't go into the temple. You'd be destroyed. Because God's presence is something else. So when we talk about revival, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about something else. So in verse 18 where it says, Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. So they're magnifying Jesus Christ and they keep doing it. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and it founded 50,000 pieces of silver. I'm thinking that's a lot of money. And when people get detached from their money, this is revival. As in the early church at Pentecost, and in Jerusalem, and they were bringing their money to the apostles. People have need, give it to them. They're giving their money away. Now, there's there's a certain degree of that in America. People, uh, there's very wealthy people in America, and they, they give a portion of that money away, and it seems like a good thing. And it is a good thing. And then there's people during times of revival when the giving goes up and up and up, to a, a, a rate and to 50,000 pieces of silver. These, I don't know what these people had left, but I'm sure these weren't millionaires. Maybe they were making a good living, but it me meant nothing to them. And they were doing it by admitting that their practices were evil. They were confessing sin, and out of that sin, they gave away the money. The people who give away money today, are they confessing sin while they do it? I don't know. I'm just asking questions. Does it seem... You know, the scripture is so complete. So when I ask this question and we look at the scripture and we're giving another element of what was taking place at that time. So in verse 23, Paul goes on and he says, about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. See, when Christians come along and they're really walking in the spirit and Jesus said, love not the world. And in John chapter 17, you know, I, I'm, I'm not praying these things for the world. It's all through the New Testament, there's the world and there's the church. And these two never meet in the scripture. They're, they're opposed to one another. It's like the flesh and the spirit. 
So here they are in the world, and it says about that time there occurred no small disturbance. Why? Because the way is not the world, and the world is not the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. We're back in the money. Now, this isn't about the church what's going on here. This is something other than the church. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. This, this is not a Christian man talking right now. And he's concerned about his pocketbook. Verse 26, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this traitor of ours fall into dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her, her magnificence, which there is where the church makes a line between them and the world. The world is worshiping false gods. The church can't do that. So there's no small disturbance. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. Here we go. We go from all this good taking place to rage coming out of it. That's the way it works. They began crying out saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I think just this week I learned, it's been around for a year now, that Canada uh, passed a law saying that if anyone tries to convert someone who's trans or a homosexual, tries to bring them to repentance, saying that what how they're living is not right before God, they can serve up to five years in jail. There it is, right on the North American continent, not in America, but in, in, in uh, Canada. You can't do this. This is our God. You can't mess with our God. We want freedom to do whatever we want. We don't want to hear that God, your God, is unpleased with us, and we're going to put you in prison if you do. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed one accord, into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia or Europe. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then there were some shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know what reason they had come together. So this is just confusion. People in there shouting, other people, what are they shouting about? Who knows? Verse 33, some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from all as they shouted for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Just think of the strength of these people. Two hours shouting. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They don't know what's right or wrong. They don't know the truth. They're in bondage. They're in blindness. They have no clue. And so they hear they're, they're, they're claiming what they know. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? It's, it's, it fell down from heaven. So since these are undeniable facts, I'm sure they are or were, you ought to keep calm and do to do nothing rash. Okay, This is a guy who doesn't want this to get out of control and everybody get hurt. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen are with him, have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. 
For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it, and in, and in this connection we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So these people are doing something that isn't lawful. Rome is going to bring down the hammer on these people. I think it was Rome. Don't take that for certain. Uh, but the governing authorities were going to just bring down the, the sledgehammer on what was going on there. And so let's, let's not do this. And that's, that kind of saved the necks of these men. Now in Acts 20, 17 through 38, we'll look through here. So what we're seeing is where Christianity comes and it starts getting into people's pockets, some people get angry and, the, and persecution can occur. But of course, God is in control of all things. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, this is Paul speaking, quote, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the gospel, that's Paul. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. People are telling him that he's getting word from God. This is a man who understands that he's going into affliction, and he never deters from it. They can't stop him. He's going to do this. Let me ask you, is that how we, we do church today? Do we go headlong? into this kind of abuse and persecution. You know, I, I think they did in, in, in Canada because I was told that I think 5,000 pastors in, throughout Canada you know, said, you look, we're not going to do this. Like they're ready to go to jail. I don't know what's happened since then, um, but that's a good thing to hear about, at least in Canada among the pastors there. But I do not consider my life of any account, Paul said, as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So if the gospel has a price to it, do people in the churches today go forth as if it had no bearing on how they were going to live their lives? It wasn't going to change the gospel. Do pastors change the gospel today? Do they fritter around with words about God's love while never ever really proclaiming with power and authority and without a confused talk about the fires of hell. Today, preaching today like Jonathan Edwards did at the beginning of the Great Awakening in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, or is Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God something that's denounced and wrong and judgmental and improperly representing Jesus Christ and the Father? I ask you, the 30 years that followed Jonathan Edwards' proclaiming of sinners in the hands of an angry God, and tens of thousands of people got saved, and actually to the point that politicians, even the politicians were pushed in a certain direction that changed the course of American history and gave us the democracy that we've enjoyed for over 200 years. So I, I ask you, is that what's going on in America today? You answer for yourself. Verse 25, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Oh, that we could only say that today if all, all of us could say that. I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why did he say that? For I, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. That means the love of God and the hatred of God. The glory of God in, in, in enjoying him forever and the evil of God that tortures men in a place called the lake of fire for eternity would ever let, without ever letting up on them. Is that a God that we understand to be true or is that just Paul's God? 
Did he proclaim the whole purpose of God? Forgiveness and unforgiveness? Love and hatred? Condemnation and, and, and forgiveness? Or are we just one-sided? Quote, be on guard for yourselves and for all, all the flock. Why? Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. This is now talking to shepherds. Mature men, not educated seminary graduates, mature elders in the church who understand the scriptures as all men are called to do. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. It only took three years for Ephesus to come to maturity. It didn't take 30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. This is prophetic, and it was fulfilled. <clears throat> Verse 31, therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, there it is. Remembering that for a period of three years. How long? Three years. Not, not 30, where people are underneath the pasture and they can't ever get un, under, out on, from under the pasture because they didn't never go to seminary. I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I command you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. Praise God for Paul. You yourselves know that these hands ministered my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard, because he was working hard, in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of our Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There's no nothing wrong that a man would give full time as the apostles did in the beginning when they had thousands upon thousands of men to disciple and there was 12 of them and they had to grow up the church and they didn't have time to do. Now there's a difference between giving a man a fish and feeding him for a meal or teaching a man how to fish and feeding him for a lifetime. At the, uh, great, at the uh, Reformation, men got a very simple and understandable way to understand what the Bible says, and that was to ex understand it literally. To understand it literally, to know that it's made up of words, and you have to take apart the words in the sentences and understand the syntax and how words relate to words and get the power behind the verb and, and, and then understand how the, the noun, the subject, and the object relate to one another, to, the, to what's going on. And in all these ways, you take the time and you understand the Bible, and there's no reason why everyone can't do that. I believe that. Are some men more gifted? Absolutely. Does that mean it just they are the ones who know and everyone just follows along behind as stupid idiots? Well, then why did John write, you know, you have an unction from the Holy One, an anointing from the Holy One, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Now, God, of course, gave teachers in Ephesians 4. Why? Because someone has to get the ball rolling, but he's not supposed to carry the ball all the way. He's supposed to hand it off. Take faithful men and pass on what I've taught what I teach. I teach others also. That's the process. We you give it away and others carry it as well. But it's not been done like that for five hundred years. And before that, you didn't even have the gospel. A little sporadic places. So in verse 36, we read, When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. Of course, he was a lovable guy. Preaching the, the hatred of God and the wrath of God and the consuming fire of God does not make a person hateful. It makes them loving. Who doesn't, if you don't tackle a man to the ground who's walking headline into a 
flaming, burning building are you loving? Is the loving man the one who stands by and says, I don't want to hurt your emotions and lets them walk into the building? Or is the loving man the, the one who tackles them to the ground? Wake up, don't go in there. It's tackling a person when we tell them about hell. Grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. You know, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, these are Paul's words, not mine. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. That word accursed is Maranatha. It means incapable of being redeemed. Incapable of being redeemed. Not, not some less, you I mean there's nothing worse than that. That's as bad as it gets. So that means you're destined to go to hell if anyone does not love the Lord. This is, it's all wrapped up. What's the law? Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and what your brother is yourself. If any man does not love the Lord, he's to be accursed. How do you, who's accursed? The people, false prophet, who proclaim a false gospel, who don't tell the whole gospel. It's really clear in everything that's just been said here. So there's not proclaiming the whole gospel, and then there's who are by false prophets, and then there's confused men who, who are confused because they, they want, they, they're working on pride. They're, they're envious for people to look at them like they're something special. And, and saved people can do this. And I went through this before, but you look at Galatians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 1, and, and you see these men laid out. You see those whom, who Paul curses, and you see those whom Paul says, you know, whether in, in goodwill or in evil, at least the gospel is proclaimed and I rejoice. He's not happy about the evil will. He's not happy about that because people are still going to face judgment. And that's the difference between this, the judgment, the white throne judgment for the unbeliever and the bema seat for the believer. It's not easy in either, either case. Of course, one is all evil. Hellfire. And the other is the loss of rewards. It's sad. It'll be very sad for, I would dare say, for most of us. Some few will get through with 100% fruitfulness from their lives, and the rest of us will suffer some. I know I'm going to suffer some. I, I confess as much as I can, but it's not undone. And there's building with the wrong type of material, and that, that's not undone. Not so far as I'm concerned. Ephesians 4, 1 through 5 says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility, that's big. Gentleness, that's big. With patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're talking about here not attacking people who are preaching a false gospel, this is about how we get along in the church with a good gospel, where there's no need for this attack, where Paul's going to go, these people should be a maranatha. This isn't Paul attacking people who are preaching a false gospel. He may have to go and love to people and, or try and say, you know, you're doing this wrong. I know when I do that and I confront people, I've already shared in this, mess, in this message, you know, they, they tell me, yeah, I've not liked that all my life and I'm not going to change now. So what do you do? I walked away. I mean, I didn't make a fight out of it. There is one body and one spirit. There is, we are all called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is all over all and through all and in all. So tell me again, if there is one of everything, why the church is fractured into a 10,000 pieces. This is part of what's going to come to light at the Bema Seat of Christ. When Jesus is going to want to know, I told you I wanted you to be one so the world might know that I loved you. The Father loved you. And how the world knows this is by your one. Why were you not one? Why did you give each other a pass by saying on secondary issues, well, you show grace. That's giving yourself a pass. I didn't say give yourself a pass. I said be one. Now, I'm not asking for perfection right now for the church. Uh, what I'm doing is proclaiming what God wants and that we would begin to say, 
we're wrong when we are. Begin to say, we can't all be divided like this and there's no sin, there's no pride. There's no, the disciples at the Lord's Supper saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? The church today is, is 10,000 strong, probably a lot more than that, saying, I'm the greatest. Who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. Let me tell you who's the greatest. Jesus. Jesus is the greatest. There is no other one beside Jesus. He is the greatest. So as we continue down these passages where this constant bickering is going on, Paul then begins to throw out what needs to take place as in chapter 5 in Ephesians. And he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love, just as Christ has also loved you and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to, a, to God as a fragrant aroma. This is something that smells good to God, and we all like to be around things that smell good. Nasty things, no. But, <coughs> excuse me, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk, of course, jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Stop giving people a, a pass saying when no one's perfect. Being imperfect and living in sin are two completely different things. That's the biggest cop-out, to use a term from the 60s, you know, that we're, that I've here around today. Well, you know, I know we don't stop sinning because no one's, they don't say even no one's perfect. You know, we all, we all sin. We don't sin the way we used to. And Paul is telling us that's not what we do. That's not who we are. If the power of God resides in a person and that person is taught correctly from the scriptures, how that works, that person will be sinning much less, much less. There's a difference between an impure thought and actually fulfilling it where you give someone a sexual disease or commit adultery or you're unfaithful and even the thoughts God has the power to correct and make them so much better. Make an entirely different person. I'm going to talk about this again as we come to a close here. Let no one deceive you with empty words. He continues in verse 6. And because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you with empty words. If you're deceived by empty words, now you have to test yourself to see if you're even in the faith. Because, because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. You might be one of them. If you're not one of them, you're in danger. If you're saved... You, you will leave that group, or God will take you home early. And he continues, for you were, form, you were formerly darkness, but now you're in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. That's where the problem and the persecution comes. That's what we are called to. We are called to be persecuted. That's just the way it is. Do not participate with them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. We don't even talk about those things. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the, right, by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. It's in the light. It is light. So I'm going to conclu conclude going through the Ephesus church and all that was going on from its beginnings, growing to maturity in three years, being sitting under an apostle who gave himself completely, even while working, that they might understand the gospel to give them this kind of victory. Does the church have this kind of victory? Well, you don't blame the members first, you blame the leaders first. Matthew 23, spend some time there. And you see two-thirds of the responsibility falls on the leaders, one-third on the members. Why? The, the leaders took the time to get educated. They did it the wrong way, but they, they did it. And they went out and because they did it the wrong way, and it sets a bad system in place 
where men become full of themselves rather than becoming humble. The apostles walked with Jesus for three years. He set them up for a fall. They got a, an, eye, a, an eagle eye view of the, the inside of their own heart when they betrayed Christ. They were so broken by it, they became apostles. Today, men build up and they never stop building. They just know who they are. They're qualified for ministry and no one can talk to them. If you're not like that, okay, I apologize to you. If you are like that, you need to confess that sin. You need to start humbling yourself much more than you are. When I tell pastors about unity and they tell me, yeah, I'm not your man, I'm not going there. Okay, all right, I've warned you. I'm like the Apostle Paul right now. I'm not like the Apostle Paul. But in the sense that I'm telling you to hold counsel of God. I'm not holding anything back. You want to hate me, hate me. We'll, we'll square that out at the, or Jesus will square that out in the, in the Bema seat. Revelations 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write. Now this is a church that goes from this high place of revival to here in the New Testament. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampsticks says this. Lamp stands. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you, you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and, and they are not and you found them to be false. They started with the Apostle Paul. They had an idea, a really good idea, what an apostle was since they saw one. And they went down that road. They started well, and they went down that road until verse 3. And even then, and you have perseverance, and you've endured for my name's sake. They endured persecution and have not grown weary. And then there comes this awful word, but. But I have this against, a, against you that you left your first love. You left... Your first love. What was love? Love is through Jesus. If any man doesn't love Jesus, I'm anathema. Now they left their first love. I don't know what else could be first beside Jesus. Jesus is kind of a, almost, we could use that as an obscure term, like what Jesus? Which Jesus? Is it the Jesus that is only loving? Or is it the Jesus who in three times in the book of Revelation is referred to as the wrath of the Lamb. Did you get that one? The wrath of the Lamb. Wrath is disclosed through the prophets, through Revelation, through the New Testament, through different portions. Wrath is something you just don't want to go near, you don't want to get close to it, you'll burn up before you get close to it, and then it'll be eternal, eternal torture, torment. So here... We're talking about loving Jesus. So he's telling them, therefore, remember, therefore, remember for where you have fallen and repent. We're back to repentance again. And this is what I'm talking about. There's so many things wrong with the church. Watered down gospels, no unity, pride, worldliness, which is, which is so vast that we're told not to love the world. Remember from where you have fallen. And all of those things that I just mentioned, you put them in their own categories, you see where the church is with regards to all of those, and you realize that they're not loving Jesus. If you love me, you would be obedient to me, Jesus said. You're not obedient when you're worldly. You're not obedient when you're proud. You're not obedient when you're divided. You're not obedient when you make education the goal and you wear it as a badge. That's not obedience. Obedience is God is everything and I'm nothing. That's obedience. Obedience is I take no credit for anything. If the only credit I take for is take credit for is my sin. I don't take credit for obedience because that's God working through me. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That same love we give back because it's his love. It's working through us. We're the channel. He's the blessing. You know, we're, we're the channel. He's the love. He's the power. He's the life. We're nothing. If we're not looking at it that way, we're proud. And all the evil that proceeds then proceeds from our pride. That's the way it works. So he continues, repent, and he says, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place. Unless you repent, that means you go blind. 
There's nothing worse than living in sin and you don't recognize it. And that's the state of sinfulness. You go blind because of pride. Pride tells you, that's not me. I'm not doing that. No, I'm not, I'm not going to stop being divided. I'm, I know what I know and I'm not going to turn from it. Somebody's got to be wrong. And chances are all of us are, are wrong on numerous things. Hopefully not the chief doctrines. But then beyond that, all the secondary issues. Generally speaking, except for Calvinism and Arminianism, if I haven't said this already, we're united. Virgin birth and so on and so forth. It's the secondary issues that divide and that causes God no less grief. Yet, this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what he's, the Spirit says to the churches. There's two ways of taking the sins the deeds of the Nicolaitans, and it's victory over the laity. That's the, that's, a, that's the one everyone rejects. You know, victory over the laity, meaning the shepherds take victory over the laity and they carry the bull and everybody has to follow them. Or it's this combining of this wanting, it's okay to be married to the world. Different ways of saying it, but that's basically what goes on. And you're okay with the evil deeds of the world. You, you're living under grace and you have a license rather than freedom to do what's right. You give yourself license to do what's wrong. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of the life which is in the paradise of God. And that's where we all want to go. And we're not going to get there for those who are, are living in unrepentance and we have fallen and we're blind and we can't see and we live as the Laodicean church which says, you know, I have no need for anything. We have need for everything and everything is found in Jesus Christ and his gospel. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the church at Ephesus. So much more could be said. But Lord, for just this short message of Lord how do we equate to this church this Ephesian church today are we to be found guilty as they were are we to be found lukewarm are we to be found as having left our first love Lord we know that five out of seven churches just were in the ditch and the other two were persecuted and they were okay with that and they never stopped loving you even unto death Lord, I don't know what's coming upon this nation, what's coming upon the people of the church, the true church. We know that persecution separates out the wheat from the chaff. And the, 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 the wheat, they die. They shed their blood. And the, the wheat just go on into the world. Lord, save those who are ordained to eternal life. And we'll give you the honor and the praise and the glory for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.